0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History magazine and BBC History Revealed. Boudicca's revolt against the Romans in 60-61 AD is one of the defining conflicts of Rome's early expansion into Britain. Duncan Mackay has recently written a new book on the rebellion, Echo Lands, so Dave Musgrove called him to talk about the legendary Iceni Queen. Caesar's troops first came to Britain in 55 BC, but it wasn't until the reign of Claudius that the Romans came to conquer in force in AD 43. So to kick off the conversation, David asked Duncan to explain how the Claudian invasion came to pass.
1: Successive Roman emperors had considered invading Britain. Um, there was a lot of kudos and reputation went with that act, if anybody could achieve it, because of course Julius Caesar had come, which was a great propaganda coup, but he hadn't actually conquered the place. It seems that King Cunabellin of the, the, of the Catavallone dies in around AD 40, and I'm not sure that leaves a power vacuum he's got several sons uh and and they all they all start to take on different territories but what also happens just after that uh, in AD 41 is that Claudius uh, becomes emperor now he became emperor as part of a, a palace coup and he needed um some sort of military kudos really to cement his claim to to be emperor. The greatest way to do that, it would be to invade Britain if he could organize it and actually manage it. And it's about the same time, um, or just after that, a British king called Verica. Comes uh, to seek his assistance in his dynastic struggles with, with the Catalauni, so that provides him the the casus belli that he needs to come across the channel and actually do it. But any invasion of Britain by by any Roman was really something impressive to put on UC, UCV. It, it was it was a propaganda stunt for both for both Julius Caesar and ultimately for Claudius. So. Th-
2: do we know when precisely the Claudian invasion occurred? What, what, How far can we be clear on a date?
1: It occurred in AD 43, and a little later in the year than they were hoping for, because a Roman general called Aulus Plautius was tasked with the invasion. Uh, he assembled what we think was, would have been four legions in Gaul and a similar number of auxiliaries, so perhaps an expeditionary force of about 40,000 men but they refused to board the transports the, the 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 Roman army didn't like getting into boats Um it sometimes ended in disaster during the reign of Augustus and another Roman army the army of Germanicus in the North Sea had suffered a terrible storm and um they'd lost a lot of ships and a lot of men um and some of the shipwrecked sailors had actually ended up in Britain and had been returned to the continent unharmed, but they came back with terrifying tales of this this place beyond the sea of sea monsters and were creatures and so it was all very terrifying for them. They actually refused to, to embark. Claudius's freedman, um, a man called Narcissus, um, spoke to the troops and effectively shamed them into getting onto the transports. And uh, and so the invasion was underway.
2: How do we know what we know here? You've you've mentioned names and uh, and and some places, so we must have some sources. But um, uh, on the British side, it's it's broadly proto-historical at this point, isn't it? I.e., it's, it's it's Roman sources talking about um, the people of Britain. Yes. Um, so, what what are we relying on to understand the picture?
1: Caesar in 55 and 54 BC provided a brilliant eyewitness account of Britain in the Iron Age. It's a it's a superb campaign narrative. Um, Caesar wasn't necessarily much of an anthropologist uh, when it came to details about about the British people. He suggested that the people in the interior of Britain didn't grow crops. They they just drank milk and ate meat and wore furs, which we know archaeologically as a nonsense. So it's a very useful account that he gives, but it's limited in what it will tell us about the, the ancient Britons. The archaeology of the late Iron Age is, is truly superb. Interpreting it is, is always our problem, and I suppose we do that in in some sense in relation to classical references to Britain, but it, it's one of those situations where you have to be very cautious in doing that, and perhaps the archaeology should be allowed to speak for itself. The Romans writing about Britain often don't have, have any understanding of it, and often haven't been there anyway. One very enlightening thing for the the 100 years in between the conquests is is the coin evidence the the british tribes start minting coins and a lot of those actually have names of rulers and where they're minted and sometimes, uh, you can look at the spread of those coins and find that they actually match quite closely with the tribal territories that the Romans later, later give us as, as administrative areas. So the coin evidence is all, is all very interesting as well. For the conquest in AD 43, Uh, our main source is Cassius Dio. He gives us the main campaign narrative. Now, Dio wrote a huge um, body of work uh, called the, The Roman History... Sometimes it's a bit hit and miss. His account of the invasion of Britain is actually very good. He doesn't dramatise it. It's very matter-of-fact, fairly short, um, and sounds fairly reliable. His account of Boudicca's rebellion later is is highly dramatised and of much less use, but um, but his account of AD 43 is very useful.
2: Right. So, uh- Going into AD 43 in more detail then, so we've got a, a an army of, of uh, Roman legions, a bit reticent to cross the channel, but, uh, but basically cajoled into it. Across they go, without going into, into a huge amount of detail, because we need to charge on to the Boudicca story, how quickly and effectively was the conquest enacted by the Romans?
1: I think the Romans were very pleased when they landed because the landing was unopposed. Uh, Caesar had originally had a terrible landing, which was an opposed beach landing, which um w- was very, very difficult uh for him to cut to, to get beyond. Uh Claudius's uh invasion in AD 43 under Plautius was unopposed. They landed and, and formed their, their beach head or their beach heads uh completely unmolested. I think the the British army, if it had previously gathered to fight them, had heard of the mutiny and the delay and had simply gone home. Um so it probably took time time to call them back. Uh, And so initially they were subjected to a a guerrilla campaign rather than any sort of head-on fight. They advanced inland very quickly. There's some argument about where they landed. Um, I think people generally accept that they landed in in Kent, perhaps around Richborough, and forced inland from there, which means that their first major battle uh, would have been on the River Medway, somewhere between Rochester and Snodland, I suppose, somewhere in that region. It was a vicious two-day battle, very heavy casualties on both sides, but the Romans won the day, and then they forge on, and the next major battle is on the Thames. Again, a major two-day battle uh, with heavy casualties, but the Romans uh, win the, the day again. The British leaders at that time were both, seemed to be, sons of King Cunabellin. Uh, Togodumnus and Caraticus. Togodumnus seems to have been killed in one of these fights, and Caraticus, after the, the fight on the Thames, pretty much throws in the towel and, and falls, falls back westwards, presumably with quite a few of his, of his men. And he ultimately ends up in Wales and, and he's there stays there. that We don't hear of him again for quite a while. Plautius digs in once he gets to the Thames. He's won this battle. He crosses the Thames. He digs in, perhaps uh, close to the, the, or even under the the present city of London, exactly where the the Roman city would later be, and sends word to Claudius in Rome. And it takes Claudius several weeks uh, to come to Britain and brings elephants with him. This is all part of the great propaganda stunt. Claudius wants a triumph of his very own. And to do that, he actually has to lead the triumphal entry. to the place that the Romans see as the regional power base, and that's a place called Camalodunum, uh, which was the seat of King Cunabellin, uh, had previously been the seat of the Trinovantes, but he'd absorbed them. And that's the, the site of present-day Colchester. So Claudius leads this triumphal attack on Colchester, quite possibly nothing more than a stage-managed show, has his victory. In, crucially, he doesn't, he's not there for very long. He's only in Britain, I think, for about sixteen days. But he receives a lot of submissions and tribute uh, and hostages, and that's that, that. That's the important thing. Lots of uh, tribal leaders come, lay down their arms, and say, "We're going to make friends with you. We're not going to fight you. We'll be cl- we'll be clients of, of Rome." One of those, presumably, is Prasutagus, who's king of the Iceni. The Iceni are a tribe inhabiting what is now northeast Anglia. It basically encompasses the area of Norfolk, North Suffolk, the, Fe- the Cambridgeshire Fens, Eastern Cambridges, that's that sort of area. It seems that they might have become friends of the Romans once before when Caesar came. He mentions receiving the submission of a, a tribe called the Caney Magni, which is really the great Caney, so presumed reasonably enough to be the great Icane. But this time again they don't fight the Romans. And and this I don't think this necessarily means that they want the Romans to be there, but the Romans are an elite force. They're anybody who meets them in open battle and the the most powerful tribe in Britain has just done that and been beaten by them. Any anyone who meets them in battle is very likely to be beaten by them and when the Romans beat you in battle, they, they slaughter large numbers of your warriors. They'll take slaves. They'll devastate the area. They'll occupy you. It's, it's not a process you, you want to go through likely. So the easiest thing to do was to to say you'd be a client. It was it was a protection racket. That meant that the Romans were boss. You couldn't step out of line. You had to pay your taxes to them. Uh, they called the shots, but it meant they wouldn't occupy you. And you had a nominal independence in the, that that tribal leader, could then continue ruling the tribe. And this 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 nominal independence would at least last as long as the life of that monarch, so long as they as long as they didn't misbehave.
2: Let's let's take the story up to the early 60s, so AD 60, so um, 15 years or so after the initial conquest. What's the situation? By then? Is the the campaign broadly over? As the Romans sort of solidified their rule where they want to be? How far would you say Roman rule extends across Britain by this point?
1: Well, the first governor, Aulus Plautius, who led the invasion, he came to the end of his tenure in AD uh, 47, by which time really they'd conquered and, and pacified and occupied a line roughly extending, I suppose, from the Humber in the northeast to the X in the southwest. Tacitus talks about uh, uh, a line behind the rivers Severn and Trent, and that's a line broadly followed by a Roman road called the Foss Way, the modern A46. It wasn't a frontier as such. It has been argued in the past that it was. It doesn't seem to have been an actual military frontier, but that was pretty, that delineated. Uh, the conquered zone at that point, and also pretty much separated the lowland Britain from from upland Britain, and the extent of the major coin producing tribes are the ones who had had the most, um, who historically had the most contact with the continent and with the Romans. However, his uh, successor or Scapula at the moment of changeover between the two governors, so it may well have been uh, premeditated. War bands from what we now know as Wales erupted into territories of the Allied tribes. So we have this line delineating across lowland Britain, but beyond that, by and large, are sort of friendly buffer states who have kind of signed some sort of treaty with Rome, the biggest one being the Brigantes in the north. It's held by a client monarch called Cartamandua, but there are anti-Roman factions in there, and it's always trouble. So um these things are always bubbling and brewing on, on the, on the per- periphery of Roman territory. But in AD 47, war erupts on the Welsh frontier, basically, and the, the Astoria scapula stepping into this uh, province realizes he's going to have to immediately go and deal with this, but he doesn't want all these independent tribal territories behind him. That are still fully armed, effectively. The tribes that had fought uh, the Romans had probably been disarmed, but there were lots of tribes that had made peace, like the Achenii, and they still had their arms. So, um, Ostorius Scapula just said, disarm them. They're they're no longer having their arms. And rather than uh, creating peace in his rear so he can go and deal with Wales, it actually causes a rebellion. And that rebellion is led by the Achenii. We don't know who else took part in it. It was seemingly a fairly minor event. Ostorius Scapula was able to deal with it with his auxiliary troops alone without being backed up by legionaries. And there was a last stand and a massacre of the rebels. We don't know where. Several sites have been suggested, but it really could be anywhere. And Tagus interestingly, uh, as the leader of the Akane, clearly has nothing to do with this because he remains in power after the event. Had he led the rebellion, he couldn't possibly have remained in power. After that, Astoria Scapula goes and starts fighting on the Welsh front, and that descends into exactly what the Romans hate and the reason that they start bringing in policies of genocide is they're then faced with a guerrilla war, which will ultimately go on for the next 13 years uh, without a break, and then after a hiatus um, will go on again in the, in, in the AD 70s. The war on the Welsh front that Tacitus describes is terrible. It's just hatred, genocide, search-and-destroy patrols, Um, taking no prisoners. It it, it reads like a sort of Roman Vietnam. It's nightmarish. And I think that this plays in very much to the story of what's going to happen. Because in AD 49, the Welsh Front needs reinforcing. The 20th Legion that had been garrisoned at Colchester, Camelodunum, is moved to Wales to join in the fight there. And Camelodunum becomes a colony, a colonia, for retiring veterans from the army. Lots of these are not young men anymore. They've served for 25 years, they're entitled to retire, they get retirement properties and a pension, and a lot of them will be retiring to stay in Britain. Um, They're familiar with the place and and it's a a province like Britain provides opportunity for a retiring veteran in, in business and all sorts of things. These veterans that are retiring to Kamala Dunham have been fighting on the Welsh front um, a lot of them predominantly. They're surly, they're belligerent, they're traumatized. They've been in a place where the the only good Britain is a dead Britain. And they're retiring supposedly to this place to create a Roman city that will be a great advertisement. For, for Roman civil, for civilization. And what Tacitus tells us is that the exact opposite happens. They start to build their city, but they treat the Trinovantes abysmally. They treat them as a conquered people, they take them as slaves, they dispossess them, they throw them off their farms, they fleece them of their wealth to, to build the city. And although we associate um, Boudicca's rebellion uh, with the Iceni and Boudicca, the other tribe that rose with them was the Trinovantes, and it was this resentment and appalling treatment of the Trinovantes, I think, which was a, a major force in, in what was about to happen. And this illustrates the difference between a conquered people who had fought and lost and the people who had become clients. You know, the, the Trinovantes were being treated effectively as slaves. The akanee directly to the north, sharing a border with them, were being left relatively um, untouched, without a garrison, without having to deal with the Romans really in any way, shape, or form. The war in Wales carried on, successive governors couldn't bring it to an end, and the the emperor that had, had come in in the AD 50s, uh, Nero, when Claudius died, I think he wants this over and done with. And he brings in in AD fifty eight a governor called Suetonius Paulinus. Now Paulinus is a famous Roman soldier. He's he's a he's a much respected Roman soldier, an old general. He's done a lot of campaigning. He's known to be a cautious, scientific, reliable uh, man for the job. And he's he's done mountain warfare. He became famous for being the first Roman general to cross the Atlas Mountains. Unfortunately for uh, Suetonius Paulinus, he's been left with a challenge. The previous deceased governor had only lasted a year before he died, but he'd left a will uh, to the uh, Emperor Nero saying that he could have conquered the entirety of Britain in another two campaigning seasons. Suetonius Paulinus uh, needs to conquer Wales quickly we don't know what he, he does. He, it's not covered sufficiently in the texts, but we know that he had two successful campaigning seasons and that two years later, by the beginning of AD 60, he had completely pacified Wales. Exactly what he'd done, what, 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 what hostage taking or desolation or, or genocide it had, had to be committed to do that. We don't know, but he was clearly. Wales was held in a stranglehold and there was only one last stronghold to take to complete the conquest, and that was the invasion of Anglesey. Now, Anglesey is uh, an island uh, lying off the north Welsh coast in the Irish Sea. It's not huge, but it's a fairly sizable island. I think it's about 276 square miles all told. It's a... It's a fairly gentle landscape compared to the the, the mainland of Wales and Snowdonia, which was visible uh, from it. It was quite hospitable. It was a a bit of a breadbasket. It was good farming land. It seems to have provided martial orchestration and supplies and reinforcements. Uh, to the tribes of Wales, but also perhaps religious orchestration. Tacitus strongly suggests that it's some sort of stronghold of the Druids, the, 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 the priesthood, this iconic priesthood. There was clearly a, re- a very real force, but we know, really know very little about But he suggests that it is a stronghold of the Druids and, and they they play a major part in what's about to happen there. So in the spring of AD 60, Paul Linus and his army are lined up on the the shores of the Menai Strait, facing an enemy coast of about 18 miles. Uh, He's created a fleet of flat-bottomed landing craft to get his army across. This is the the stuff of, of high drama in the story, because when Tacitus begins his story of AD 60. In book 14 of the Annals, which is the only really good account we have of Boudicca's war, this is where he starts the account with Paul army about to cross over to the Menai Strait.
2: Okay. All right. So that's a a very interesting scenario we've got. So we've got um, some pretty hardcore military action going on in Wales. We've got uh, a very rough sort of town environment going on in Colchester, um, and we've got Boudicca. Boudica, Boudica um, hoves into the story, not too far away from it from from here now. So, so bring Boudicca in. Who is she, and what's 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 her her role in the situation now?
1: Boudicca is the wife of Prasutagus of the Iceni she seems to be the queen consort rather than holding power in her own right. Unlike Cartamandua of the Brigantes, who was the queen in her own right, and her husband Venutius was a consort. It's, but in, in this case, she's not queen as such. Tacitus doesn't refer to Boudicca as a queen at any point. Dio has herself, has Boudicca refer to herself as a queen, but doesn't refer to her as a, as a queen herself. But I think it's a moot point. She was married to the king. She was a consort. And I I think once uh, once Prasutagus dies and she is left alone, I think it's quite, it is quite acceptable to call her a queen. Prasutagus died sometime perhaps in the winter of AD 59-60. Uh, and crucially, uh, he left a will uh, to the Emperor Nero. That will left half of his kingdom to Nero and the other half to his two daughters. Uh, with Boudicca, and that's very much all we know about Boudicca. She was married to Prasutagus, they had two daughters. Um, We don't know how old the daughters were, Um, it's assumed they were very young women or perhaps even girls, but at that moment that made them very important because the future of the tribe was embodied in in these two two young women or these two girls. Um, Boudicca wasn't the heir, for whatever reason, we don't know. This will um, was really in direct contravention as far as the Romans were concerned of the whole um, policy of having a client state. That's, that clientship would have been with Presutagus and, and it was fully expected that once he died, everything was forfeit. The, the, the kingdom would become part of the province and any wealth that he had had would, would probably go to, to Nero. So by trying to ward this calamity off he had uh, tried to, to to play the game, I suppose. The Romans weren't having any of it. They came straight into the territory to annex it. Uh, presumably, Boudicca stood her ground, and that effectively made her a rebel. Um, she may well have been a Roman citizen. It's very likely that Prasutagus was a Roman citizen, and so if they were, so so were their daughters. But by... Standing her ground and saying that she didn't want the Romans to annex the kingdom, she was effectively in in an act of rebellion. I suppose uh, the Romans weren't having any of it. They 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 flogged Boudica, uh, and they raped her daughters. Uh, and the import of that to the tribe must have been unimaginable. These these uh, these girls or these young women, however old they were, were were the, were the future of the tribe, the future of the bloodline. Presumably unmarried virgins. The reaction of the Iceni is probably the exact opposite of what the the Romans are hoping for. I think they hoped that by this act it would it would end any Akanean, um thoughts of independence or continued independence. And, and this is what the Romans thought of that idea. And that this is what you get if you if you flout um, our laws. It backfired atrociously. Uh the Akane the rose up in rebellion. The Trinovantes, uh, their neighbors who had been treated very badly uh were were ripe for that as well, rose with them. And uh the first thing they do is advance on Camelodunum, this hated Roman town uh, the most Roman town in the province but crucially it had no defenses and it had no garrison beyond these uh, Roman veterans who would have been hard men they knew how to fight they presumably still had a lot of weapons Tacitus says that part of the reason for putting veterans in that that in that place was to guard against rebellion so they were presumably still heavily armed but they were they were they were middle-aged men and older men and they, they were no longer soldiers. The response of the settlers at Camelodunum is to send um, a message to the procurator, Catus Decianus, who I think we can probably blame for this crisis. He's probably the man who sent um, these uh, soldiers into Acania to claim the province. He is probably in London, Londinium, a a big trading centre that's grown up there very, very rapidly in the years after the conquest. He doesn't have a garrison either, so he sends what Taster says are two hundred poorly armed um, men. Um, they sound suspiciously unprepared for battle. They uh, they may well be uh, perhaps professional soldiers that are long seconded for detached duties in Londinium or whatever they were. They went to Camulodunum to try and, and help the city. They will also have sent a message tearing up. Um, a road called the Via Divana, which led straight to the East Midlands to the closest garrison, and that was the Ninth Legion. So the Ninth Legion were in the east, the eastern part of the country, the East Midlands, effectively. They seem to have been split between several garrisons at that time, uh, perhaps one around the modern area of Lincoln, perhaps a, a smaller one in Nottinghamshire. But the main body of their troops seems to have been uh, just to the west of Peterborough, at a place called Longthorpe. And that's only about a 75-mile march from Camelodunum. So if there's going to be a relief column that marches to try and save Dunham uh, before the rebels get there, it's going to be this vexillation of the Ninth uh, at Longthorpe. I suspect they marched immediately. And this is where Tacitus begins his story with Paulinus about to invade Anglesey the troops go across he gives a vivid description um of these these flat bottomed boats crossing uh the Menai Strait crossing crossing the shifting shallows this very treacherous body of water and on the far shore he describes this terrifying scene uh, of Druids and Druidesses, uh, lots of warriors all waiting to oppose this crossing. And remarkably, the Roman soldiers get across the Menai Strait, start to disembark from their boats, and are stopped dead in their tracks by the Druids throwing curses and spells at them. Um, It must have been a phenomenal, electrifying thing to see. The Romans were very suspicious, they had a a, a, a deep respect or caution of other people's um, gods and deities and religions, and I think uh, a group of cursing priests and priestesses throwing spells at them must have terrified them, and, and that's exactly what Tacitus says, it stopped them dead in their tracks. That must have... um it, it must have redoubled the efforts of the priests and the warriors who can see the power of their gods halting this Roman army. But ultimately, it's it's a, a short lull. The army marches on. They they butcher the druids. They they beat the army. They start to hack down the the, the sacred groves that Tacitus says were there. And once they've got a foothold on that island, the the island is doomed. It's not big enough to support a protracted guerrilla campaign or a guerrilla defence. The Romans needed a beachhead, and once they've got it, they can they can endlessly uh, uh, reinforce that beachhead. So it's over. While all this is going on though, a messenger must have boarded a supply punt on the Menai Strait, crossed to Anglesey, got an escort, found Paulinus's headquarters, and passes him a message. And that message is that rebellion has broken out behind him in the province and paulinus is going to want to get his army off anglesey and march straight to the south consolidate his forces and try and stamp out whatever it is that's broken out in the province
2: and what has broken out so how big is is the revolt um under under Boudicca's leadership and is it under Boudicca's leadership is is she the the figurehead of the of the revolt
1: all we can say is that both Tacitus and Dio um, say that it was her rebellion, that she led it, uh, she orchestrated it. The main account to go with is Tacitus in, in Book 14 of the Annals. It's a very good account, it's a very nuanced, it's multi-layered, and there are different layers of evidence within it. It's fundamentally a good campaign narrative and a good, seemingly very reliable campaign narrative. When he starts to talk about Boudica, Prasutagus, her daughters, people like that. It, I think he's still describing real events, but it's this, a second tier of evidence where he's playing puppet master a little bit and pulling the strings. But I don't think we have any reason to doubt that Boudicca was the focus of this and that she did lead the rebellion. Ultimately, we don't know how enormous it was when it started. It seems that the Akane and the Trinovantes rose. We must be talking Tens of thousands of warriors, surely. Tastus says that others rose with them. However, many of them there were, it was an overwhelming force. It was something that the inhabitants of Colchester and the veterans in Colchester could never hope to ward off. And it may have been a rather stark realization when the army appeared and they saw how many there were, because the veterans of Colchester didn't evacuate the city. They sent for support, but they seemed to have had a, a confidence, perhaps a, a rather arrogant confidence as tough old soldiers, that these were defeated natives. But I think the moment that army appeared, probably from the north-northwestern arc um, of the city, they, they must have realised that unless a relief force from the Ninth Legion could fight its way through, they were, they were doomed. That relief column does set out, and we know that it marches. Um, we know that it was f- from from putting together several uh, different uh, bits of tar- as narrative. We 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 can think that it probably composed of the better part of two thousand eight hundred men um perhaps the better part of 2000 legionaries and the rest auxiliaries at least a uh, half of which were probably cavalry um this is partly based on the archaeology that's been the the fortress at Longthorpe that's been excavated uh, it is possible and it's sometimes said that they might might actually have marched from Lincoln but Lincoln was a long way away and there was this closer fortress that seems much more likely to have provided that relief column We don't know what happened to that relief column beyond the fact that it never got to Colchester. Somewhere en route uh, it was presumably ambushed and Tacitus says that it was routed and massacred. He doesn't describe a a hard fight. The foot soldiers, perhaps the better part of 2,000 or more men, uh, were wiped out pretty much to a man uh, and the cavalry, perhaps 500 or so, we don't actually know, escaped with Patilius Ciri Alderson, and went back to, presumably, the, the same fortress to hold up there, which left Camelodunum utterly defenseless. The Britons reached Camelodunum, they sacked the city. The veterans fell back on the temple complex, which really provided the only defensible unit uh, of the city, the 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 temple itself was very much a stronghold on a on a fighting platform. It was a nice bastion to hold a, a final defence. But there may well have been a, a a sacred precinct around the temple at that time with a wall or, or something defining it that would have that could have accommodated all of the local people. But there may have been ten thousand. Romans seeking shelter in this place. We don't know, but if they didn't evacuate the city, um, there would have been thousands of Romans um, holed up in this place. They hold out in the temple complex for two days, and then the Britons break in, and a massacre ensues. They they they're wiped out, and Colchester has fallen to the rebels.
2: And it sounds from your descriptions, it sounds like it was a a pretty violent affair. Um, and it kind of it feels like it's a case of of Roman violence begets. British violence, in a, in a sense, it was uh, brutality meets brutality. Is is that right? Was was it? Is there evidence for for particular violence here?
1: Yeah, the, not from the archaeological record. One thing that's that lack we lack in a lot of uh, most of these places in Boudica's war are human remains. But there have been some from Colchester, just scraps and fragments. But the, those scraps and fragments often um, have evidence of sharp and blunt force trauma. Um, Tacitus describes a massacre and there's no reason to doubt that. But I think it's true. I think this is probably a sort of warfare that was completely alien to Britain before the Roman conquest. Um, I think there certainly was warfare before the Roman conquest, but what the Romans always do is industrialize things. They industrialize warfare. They industrialize massacre. They industrialize, um, slavery. They, they bring everything on a big scale. And I think it is very much a case of, of paying the Romans back in kind. Tacitus says that the one feature of the whole of Boudicca's war is that she didn't take prisoners. She didn't take them to, to take as slaves. She didn't, she didn't use them to barter back or ransom them back. She just killed everybody. This is, this is obviously a, a, a criticism of, of Boudicca's and her army's conduct of the war. Um, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that it's exactly what the Romans did as well. It was the nature of ancient warfare. She would actually have been quite an unusual ancient commander if her army had behaved any better than that. Cassius Dio describes particular atrocities which are almost too terrible to to even repeat or think about. He talks about specifically female mutilation of of people being um, skewered lengthways on wooden skewers, of um, the noblest Roman women having their breasts cut off and sewed to their mouths to make it appear uh, as if they're eating them. How much we can really accept that and read into that is never going to be answered. Um, It it sounds suspiciously like uh, uh, Dio's imagination, but even if it's based on original military reports from the time, nothing gains colour like a good atrocity story. I don't think we need to doubt that terrible atrocities and terrible cruelties and torture took place. Whether we can accept details like that is is another matter entirely.
2: A brutal state of affairs. Camilla Dunham is sacked. The people inside are are, are dead and, and and possibly dead in in, in nasty ways. But um, spoiler alert: Boudicca doesn't win this revolt. So what happens? How is how is the revolt defeated?
1: Once Boudicca has taken Colchester we get into a little bit of confusion in our timeline. So Paulinus is hammering it back from North Wales. Tacitus tells us that. Boudicca is probably spending a fair amount of time at Camelodunum. It's an enormously rich prize. And they've suffered. They've they've taken on the Ninth Legion. They've taken on this stiffly defended temple compound. So they may well be spending a bit of time. The problem that we have is that Tacitus tells us that Paulinus marched from North Wales, from Anglesey, and got to London ahead of Boudicca. Now, he's probably 275 plus miles away. Boudicca is only 50 or so miles away. So, this has always caused a little bit of concern. It's long, long been in the established narrative that Paulinus hammered it down Watling Street, the main road that ran from from that, that part of Britain down to London that he went down with a big force of cavalry, and that his legions tramped along the roads behind him, um, going much slower. And that's how he managed to get to London ahead of Boudicca. That's such an established part of the narrative that when I started researching this again, having read Tastus many times before. I assumed that Tastus specifically said that, but he doesn't. Taster says that, that Paulinus marched with great resolution to London. He doesn't mention him splitting his forces. He doesn't mention galloping off with cavalry. I still think it's a not unreasonable assumption. I think at that point, he doesn't know what he's up against. And a big force of cavalry, 500 cavalry, 1,000 cavalry, is quite a big force for any marauding band uh, of local malcontents to stand up to. So he may genuinely have hoped that as a relief force, this would end the rebellion. and I don't have any problem with him leading cavalry south, but it's a bit of a red herring as far as I'm concerned. He heads south and he gets to London ahead of Boudicca with or without his entire army, we don't know. He establishes that London is indefensible and then gets reports from his, his scouts and staff officers about what he's really up against, about how big this rebel army is, that could, you know, some accounts would suggest might be a hundred thousand rebels by this time. It's a vast force. He abandons London. He takes anyone that will go with him. Um, but probably a lot of people are left there who don't want to leave their homes, are destitute if they do. Probably lots of refugees have been cramming into London who are just too exhausted to carry on going. Boudicca falls on London, destroys the place, utterly. And then another point of confusion: where what happens next in the narrative? Tacitus tells us that then, like ruin, fell on the the, the town of Verulamium. Now, Verulamium lay just just north or north northwest of, of of London, twenty or so miles away. It's not very far. We assume that Paulinus Linus fell back there and abandoned it before she destroyed it. But Tacitus doesn't tell us that, and that that's opened up. Um, the possibility for some people to suggest that Paulinus perhaps retreated west from London, where other destruction layers in the archaeology have been observed. Whether or not they date to that exact year, we don't know. But it fall, all falls into a bit of, of confusion. Ultimately, the last known sighting we have of Boudicca's army from Tacitus is at Verulamium, which she destroys. And if Paulinus has retreated that way, He's clearly abandoned it.
2: Verulamium is, is St. Albans. Um, Modern St.
1: Albans, absolutely. So Paulinus has clearly abandoned the place by the time she destroys it. And then we have a parenthesis in Tacitus's account, which again I think is a bit of another red herring. At that point, having said that Verulamium is destroyed, he then starts to talk about the conduct of the Britons. In several paragraphs and he talks about their conduct in the war in general. It doesn't have to go in at that point, it's not relevant to that specific moment in time, but that separates the fall of Verulamium from what he's about to say next. And what he says next, once you remove the parenthesis, is that light ruin fell on the town of Verulamium, and then Paulinus broke off delay and fought a battle. Now, people have looked for this battle everywhere, from North Wales to south of the Thames to Cambridgeshire to Wiltshire. And it's normally based on looking at landscapes that match a vague landscape description that Tacitus gives. And that is that the Romans were approached by the Britons through some sort of narrowing landscape feature. We normally call it a defile, a shallow valley, something like that. That their position was backed by woodland um, so they couldn't be outflanked, and the Britons were approaching from relatively clear ground. Now there's many places in the British landscape that look like that. I guarantee if you pull out an northern survey map, you'll find several sites that match that description. We've long been told by accepted wisdom that this is probably in the West Midlands, somewhere. There's no real reason to place it in the West Midlands. We're told it's uh, along Watling Street somewhere and it's become known as the Battle of Watling Street. It's a more reasonable assumption, but we don't know. What I would suggest is, from the Tacitus' account is that we should be looking very close to St Albans. He's given us a very clear campaign narrative. He's taken us from Norfolk to Colchester to London. To St Albans, he's had Paulinus on Anglesey and come down south to London and then retreat again. He's given us a very clear geographical theatre of war, and then he's telling us that there's a battle almost immediately. I think he's not specifying where that is because he's effectively already told us. He said that the army's in the vicinity of Verulamium, and then there's a battle. So I don't think we need to be looking very far from Verulamium, wherever it happened. Paulinus has the 14th Legion part of the 20th Legion and auxiliaries to the number of about 10,000 men. It's uh, not the full garrison of Britain. Obviously, the 9th have been mauled. The 2nd Legion in Exeter hasn't marched to his aid for whatever reason. So he's by himself uh, and he's facing a rebel army that may number 80 or 100,000 people. We just simply don't know, but many tens of thousands at least. He's outnumbered and he's got 10,000 men.
2: Now, we haven't got time to to go into great detail on the battle itself, but um, broadly speaking, the Romans win, right?
1: The Romans do win. It's an an absolute victory. The Britons charge up this defile. Uh, They're met by a solid wall of legionary shields uh, and short swords. Those legionaries then start pushing forward and, and turning that charge back down. The defile, the, uh, the auxiliary cavalry are unleashed on, on the wings, and there's a massacre as the, the British army is caught against its own baggage train. Tacitus tells us that every living thing on the field was killed. This is another of those examples of the Roman army just being ordered to commit genocide. It's the easiest way to stamp out a rebellion. You've got the army on the field, you've got their baggage animals, you've got their non-competence, you can destroy them. And that's what they do. Tacitus says that every living thing on the field, including the non-competence, the women, and even the baggage animals, was slaughtered and there was nothing left alive. There would have been fugitives, um, there may have been a great number of fugitives that would have been hunted down uh, in the days to come or managed to flee into in, in the countryside. But everything on the field was supposedly killed. Um, a crushing victory. Uh, and it, it effectively must have stamped that part of the rebellion out cold. Probably the rebellion of the Akeni and the Trinovantes.
2: Right. Last last thing. what Boudicca herself, do we know exactly what happens to her after the battle?
1: Not reliably. Um, we have two accounts. Uh, Dio Cassius always gives his version of events and it's normally in opposition to Tacitus. Um, he says that she died of illness. Exactly what that's meant to mean is open to anyone's guess. And he also says that she received a lavish and very very rich funeral. It's not the sort of funeral that's common to the lands of the Akane. They don't really bury their dead in that way. or do we, we don't really know what their normal way of getting rid of the dead was, but they're not occurring in the archaeological record. They may well be, be being cremated and thrown into rivers. So I'm not inclined to give his account very much worth. Tacitus says that she took poison, which sounds more likely. It might just be a euphemism for the general act of suicide i find it difficult to believe that if she was on the field of battle that she escaped it uh, and i very much doubt that the romans would have found or recognized her corpse afterwards i would imagine in the final moments uh, she she cut her own throat and those of her daughters but we simply don't know tacitus is generally the more reliable author on this and he says that she she committed suicide
2: okay good. All right, L- last last thing then. I suppose this is a a dramatic story, a story full of rich detail and and all sorts of terrible things going on, but lots of um lots of action and adventure so you can you can well understand why it's it's been repeated down the ages. But why why do you think Boudica still speaks to us? Why is she still a figure that people remember and talk about, make statues of, write books about?
1: I think Boudicca represents the ultimate resistance to unjust authority. And we know so little about her that you can then reinvent her to be whoever, whatever you need her to be. And that's exactly what successive generations have done. I think as a symbol of resistance, she will always be an important and timeless figure. I think the most important group to have latched onto her were the suffragettes, and that was a very natural uh, appropriation, I think, especially as it coincided the rise in, in, in the women's suffrage campaign coincided with the remarkable statue by Thomas Thornycroft that appeared on the Thames embankment to the landfall of Westminster Bridge. And it was positioned in such a way that it looks like this remarkable warrior woman and her daughters in a a chariot with with rearing horses and flailing hooves and a a spear upraised are actually storming the Houses of Parliament. It's been placed so it looks like she's attacking Parliament. It was perfect for the suffragettes. They used that statue as a rallying point. And and by 1908, the Women's Social and Political Union were producing a, a beautiful silver brooch of the, of the statue. and There's there's lots of, of portrait photographs of, of Christopher Pankhurst and Emmeline Pankhurst and Mary Blaithwaite and, and people wearing uh, proudly wearing this bodicea brooch. I think that for the modern generation, she was a woman who kicked back against specifically male violence, very targeted male violence. This is a woman being beaten it's her daughters being subjected to the most horrific sexual violence, but they kicked back, uh, and they kicked back uh, much, much harder uh, than than they than they were were suffering themselves. They it was this was the biggest war that ever took place on British soil. It culminated in the biggest battle. Ever to take place on British soil and in British military history. Tacitus claims that 80,000 Britons died in that battle. And even if we accept that's an exaggeration and that perhaps half it and say 30 or 40,000 died, it's still twice the death rate of the other known bloodiest day in British military history on the first day of the Somme. This was a kickback against unjust authority. And I think that's such a perennial theme. I think it's always going to attract people. it, uh, it, it attracts minority activists from from, from suffragists to environmentalists uh, and everyone and everyone else. She will always be a figure of resistance against something that's wrong and against something that's that's evil and having the courage to kick back irrespective of, of, of what the the result of that might be.
0: That was Duncan Mackay. His new book, Echolands, A Journey in Search of Boudicca, is out now from Hodder and Stoughton. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by
1: Brittany Colley.